are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. Okay. Everyone out there knows that weight loss is not one of my favorite topics because we all grew up steeped in diet culture and harmful, idealized images of women who were stick skinny and often unhealthy. That said, I do recognize that body composition changes are a major concern for many menopausal women as we can see some pretty sudden shifts in muscle mass and body fat during this time. And many women are now interested in the current weight loss injectable drugs known as GLP-1 receptor agonists, otherwise known as Ozempic and Wagovi and others. And that interest is only going to get stronger as menopausal women are increasingly being marketed and targeted for these drugs. In fact, the New York Times recently published a feature called Ozempic, a new match for menopausal weight gain. But is it? How do these drugs work? How well do they work? Who benefits from them? What are their risks? What impact do they have on muscle, bone, and performance? These are important questions for active women, especially since they can negatively impact some of that. To get those answers, I reached out to endocrinologist and Ironman triathlete, Dr. Jody Duchesne, who has been researching these drugs for more than a decade. And to be clear, though there are some important pitfalls around these medications, they can be a game changer for those who need them. We dig into all of that during this conversation. Jody is an endocrinologist at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. She is also the founder and director of Well Powered, a comprehensive wellness and weight management program. And as a triathlete, she has qualified for Kona three times and came in second in her age group at the 2020 Ironman World Championship in St. George. You can learn more about her and her work at wellpowered.org. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, as well as some of her research. I hope this one answers your burning questions about the drugs behind the headlines. There's new research coming out all the time. I'll try to keep you posted on what you need to know at feistymenopause.com going forward. Speaking of feistymenopause.com, give us a follow at feistymenopause on Instagram and Facebook. Check out our Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group and head on over to feistymenopause.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and check out our brand new upcoming course navigate menopause. Thank you as always for the kind reviews and the five-star ratings. I've got big plans for the new year and they help me grow and promote this show. All right, enough of me. Let's have a few words about our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. 
and they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like Feisty Menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. Okay, Jody, I cannot believe the fortune that I had finding you via the internet. <laughs> I, I do a lot of background research and trying to find just the right expert because it's hard to find people who really get this audience, you know, like it, it, it really is. And for this topic, especially, I was like, I really want to find the right person. And I feel like I hit the jackpot in finding you. I'm so, I'm so stoked because I mean, you're not only an authority in this topic, but you also are a really accomplished uh, 70.3 and Iron Distant Triathlete. You won your age group in Timberland last year. I, I did. <laughs> I did. Congrats. And, and more. I mean, you've done like, just, you, tell us a little bit about like, tell us a little bit about your triathlon life and then we'll get into you know, the rest of it. Sure thing. So, um, well, first, I'm equally stoked to be here. Um, it's uh, just a really great overlap of wheelhouses for me to be able to talk about um, what I do professionally to an audience of people who um, are like-minded in terms of their hobby and also sometimes don't know which way the scale turns, like which is your hobby and which is, you know, which do you uh, consider, you know, your primary time commitment and passion. So, um, yeah, this is really, uh, it, like I said, it's a combination of um, two wheelhouses all in one. So um, thank you very, very much for the opportunity. Um, I came into triathlon after being a high school and college endurance runner. Um, and then after college, did a little bit of marathon running and then switched over to triathlon in uh, 2013. Um, and then um, just enjoy doing uh, the range of distances from Olympic to um, to the full course. And you're coached by Karen Smyers, right? I am. I'm coached by Karen Smyers. Yep, the the legend and part of a really amazing club called Team Psycho that has full of 
fantastic people, men and women, but a uh, special shout out to um, a really fantastic female community um, of athletes on our team. Um, we do training together and um, really also over the course of the lifespan. I mean, we have some younger athletes, but we have a lot of athletes who are in their um, 50s, 60s, beyond 60s, 70s. Um, so at women. So um, it's awesome. it's really, yeah, it's a great community. That's that's very cool. So so that fully establishes that you completely understand this audience. And I don't have to tell you that weight um weight gain is incredibly charged. It's an incredibly charged topic among menopausal women who sometimes see dramatic shifts in their body composition despite following, you know, they can show you on their training peaks, you know, despite following the same training plans, fueling. So to, to start and set the stage, and I've done whole shows on this, so we don't need to obviously spend the entire show on it, but can we just give some key points about menopausal weight and fat gain, body composition changes, just to sort of set up this conversation about like what's happening? Sure. And indeed, you have had several terrific episodes that are dedicated to deep dives into various aspects of what happens uh, when women go through menopause. Uh, I just to I think maybe just further refine the stage. So I think we're talking about menopause that occurs as women age, as opposed to menopause that occurs more abruptly through, say, surgery or chemotherapy or conditions like premature ovarian failure. So we're talking about menopause that occur occurs um, just through the course of aging. Okay, so to set that stage, there are changes in body composition. In general, there are decreases in fat-free mass and increases in fat mass that occur. And often this is around the waist, not always, but often it occurs around the waist. And there are also changes in both total and resting energy expenditure that occur in everyone as they age, men and women. This occurs uh, lower levels of estrogen and possibly even rising FSH contribute to this. There are some interesting studies in animals that were able to uh, use antibodies to FSH, then look at what happens to changes in energy expenditure if you're able to um, block that rise of FSH and LH, but people tend to more track FSH uh, during menopause. So there may be a role for that. Um, and it's not entirely clear why there tends to be central accumulation of body fat, but we do know a lot about why that accumulation of body fat around the middle is um, less healthy and is more metabolically injurious and increases risk for other cardiometabolic diseases. But I do want to just say that there are a lot of uh, a lot of theories, a lot of potential risk factors for weight gain during menopause. So it could be changes in lifestyle. It could be that people are changing their physical activity. I think in this audience, probably we can, you know, discard, uh, discard that as a potential, um, significant contributor, but that does happen in, um, in a lot of women. Uh, there may be some medications that are weight promoting that could be coming, uh, into play. Um, metabolism, that's always a very difficult word to use, but your metabolic rate, as I said, both total and resting energy expenditure um, decrease. Other pre-existing medical, medical conditions may contribute to this. Uh, pre-existing thyroid disease or history of PCOS or history of cortisol excess or fatty liver disease might predispose you to, say, more weight gain or where the weight is distributed after menopause. Um, one thing that I'm really interested in that I have not seen any data on from large, any 
sort of large um, studies is whether there is any relationship between how much gain a woman, how much weight a woman gains during pregnancy mm-hmm. and what happens with weight gain after menopause. That is, I think, hasn't been carefully studied. I always when I do a weight history in my patients, which we'll probably get into soon, uh, I do always ask about pregnancy gain. And um, and it's just, it's anecdotal. But I do I do hear that there, that women who come in with a lot of weight gain during menopause seem to also report um, weight gain of say 60, 70, you know, 80, very, very significant weight gain during pregnancy. So I don't know if this, uh, I don't know of any large studies that have looked at this, but that has been, you know, kind of intriguing me, um, as I listen to people's stories of weight gain over their lifespan. Um, and then there are genetics, there are epigenetics, the gut microbiome changes in appetite, changes in sleep, like all the usual things that happen that are risk factors for weight gain in anyone. Um, may, it may be the case that this is, even uh, exacerbated as women go through menopause. Yeah, I mean, it, it is so multifactorial. And thank, for, thank you for that. Because when you look at all of the places where estrogen interacts with our serotonin and with our stress and with our gut microbiome, you know, and all those pieces that you just talked about, it makes sense that when we go through this pretty seismic hormonal shift that lots of things are affected that can contribute. Sleep, you know, we didn't even talk, you know, there's so many different aspects. So, so right. Given all of that, I mean, you've seen the headlines, we've all seen the headlines, like now the current crop of um, medications, the glucogen-like peptide one receptor agonist, GLP-1s, semaglutide, are being promoted as, quote unquote, the answer to menopausal weight gain, I've, you know, they're in, in big places like the New York Times. So I feel like we really need to have this conversation because I will tell you, Jody, there's nothing that gets more heated on the community pages that I host than this topic. Why don't we first give a history of these drugs? Because they're not exactly new. And I know you were involved in like very early research. Okay, sure. So we, why don't we start by talking about this class of medications that are called glucagon-like, GLP-1 receptor agonists, glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists or analogs. Um, there, we'll talk about them first. There is a, a newer class of medications, but first, well, there's a lot to go through with this class. So they haven't been around that long, actually. Um, they were first developed for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Now, the first agent in this GLP-1 receptor agonist class is a medication called that almost no one talks about anymore called exenatide. Exenatide was approved in 2005 um, as a twice daily injection for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. And um, actually, back in 2012, the one of the first research papers that I, big research papers that I did um, as a as an endocrine fellow, um, was looking, in fact, at exenatide in exclusively in overweight and obese women without diabetes. So I, I want to get into that study a little bit more because um, I, it was informative, I think, for um, what I learned from that study has been informative, not only in my clinical practice, but also how I have interpreted data in this whole field uh, using GLP-1 receptor agonists for weight loss. But um, it was also just a great study that was, um, I had a lot of female fellows, I had a female mentor. So it really is, um, and people's career trajectories from this study actually went into very 
in very interesting places. So it's got its own backstory in addition to the fact that it was one of the first studies looking at these agents in humans in without in human in people women especially uh, in particular without diabetes so that was the first in class and then um after that in 2009 uh Exetatide was approved as a once weekly medication then coming down the pike was um a medication called loraglutide that's victoza that you take that is taken once a day approved in 2010 um after that it was approved as sexenda so a lot of these medications are the same molecule that have two different FDA approvals, which means that technically speaking, they are two different drugs, right? They have two different approvals, two different dosing regimens. And so they are considered two different, they have two different indications. This gets very complicated when we start to talk, when we fast forward to the present day where people are using them all over the place as if they're all the same and they're actually giving them all the same name. They're calling them all, you know, semaglutides, but they, they're not. <laughs> um, okay. So then we had, then we moved on to loraglutide. Then there was another molecule called dulaglutide trulicity, which is like almost never gets any attention, but it's still alive and out there and I prescribe it. And um, it is, um, it is a once weekly injection. And then we had Ozempic approved in 2009, uh, 2017. Um, as Ozempic, semaglutide was approved as Ozempic in 2021. It was approved as Wagovi. So, sorry about all like I don't want to get too mired in these dates, but the point of all this is the first date I just said was 2005, right? So we're not even talking about these medications being around for decades and decades, right? We're talking about them, you know, really only since uh, the early 2000s, and even fast forward more, Ozempic 2017. So, you know, these haven't been around that long. Um, so then the newest kids on the block are uh, that is terzepatide. That's a dual agonist of both GLP-1 and another peptide called GIP, gastrointestinal inhibitory peptide that is also made in um, the small intestine. And it is this medication agonizes those receptors as well as GLP-1. So that's a dual agonist. And terzepatide was approved as Monjaro for type 2 diabetes in 2022. And then just a few weeks ago as Zepbound uh, for weight, uh, for obesity without diabetes. Okay. So I guess, okay, let me just, let me to sort this, <laughs> to sort this out. Um, be, so there are, in this class, there are one, two, six agents. Um, and they are, some of them are the same molecule with two different approval pathways for diabetes or for obesity. Okay. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support 
and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the otter is stuffed with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter's taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. So these medications, why don't I dive into how they work? Because they do have some commonalities. Um, they work in vari- in a variety of ways. They work for weight loss. They work in the brain. There are receptors for these medications in the brain. So they work in the brain to help with appetite control. So they help you feel full. They also work outside the brain in what we call the periphery. And that is the stomach, the intestines, the pancreas really anything outside the brain is called the periphery. So you have, we have GLP-1 receptors all over our body. So that's how these medications have effects on, have metabolic effects, but also they have direct effects, say on the heart, on the liver, on the pancreas. Um, And they keep food in your stomach longer. That is this delayed gastric emptying. Food in your stomach longer sends two different kinds of signals to the brain. Stretch receptors, Tell the brain, hey, we're busy down here, right? The balloon is stretched out. Don't need to look for more food. And then also it uh, quiets down hunger hormones and um, helps and then send signals to the brain, which then cause the release of satiety hormones so that you stop eating. So again, business going on in the stomach, relaying chemical and stretch type receptor messages to the brain. Hey, no need to look for food. We're good. We're busy down here. Um, so that is one way in which they help with satiety. The mechanism by which they help Lower blood sugar is primarily through um, insulin secretion that is dependent upon how high a glucose level rises. Um, So if a person has diabetes, say, and they eat a meal that causes their blood sugar to go very high, these medications help the pancreas secrete more insulin to reduce that blood sugar rise. 
in a person without diabetes who eats a meal and the blood sugar doesn't go outside the normal range, it will not cause the pancreas to do to secrete insulin sort of in excess of what the body needs. So right. if you need more because your blood sugar is out of the normal range and is going too high because you have diabetes, then it will help lower the blood sugar. So that's how they work to help treat diabetes. Um, if you don't have diabetes, they, then the effect on blood sugar um, is generally, it it doesn't cause low blood sugar and it um, your insulin secretion is already taking care of how high your blood sugar goes. So that is, thank you for that, because that's an excellent, excellent um, description of how these work. I like, I, 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 I haven't heard somebody describe it so beautifully as far as the brain and the periphery. So I appreciate that. Um, regarding menopause women specifically, do we have any insights into this population and whether or not, you know, there's a, there's a lot of chatter that I see about people who may be quote unquote, super responders. Please explain what that even means and those who are not. And, and what, what we may or may not know about this population specifically. Okay, sure. So this will be um, segue me back to that original study in 2012, and then to another subsequent study, which I did. So this first study, actually looking at exenatide, identified the fact that there are groups of responders. So we identified kind of three buckets of responders. And at the time, um, we called a responder greater than 5%. A That was a responder, a medium responder, actually, we kind of, we called it high. A medium responder was, um, say, 3 to 5%, but not more than 5%. And then a non-responder was people who actually ended up um, having some weight gain. So they took these medication, took medication, and still they gained some weight. So that, now, that was, you know, again, first in class. And so um, now the responder, the cutoffs for responders have gotten much, much higher because um, people are having very dramatic responses. So, um, Subsequently, what we did was we looked at what happened to weight trajectories of only responders. So we so we enriched our group. So we started everybody on the medication and only those people who lost at least 5% of their body weight stayed on the medication in this subsequent study that I did. And then we looked at what happened with the trajectories among the responder group. And so there was also splay, right? So you, you take out everyone who didn't lose at least 5% of their body weight, keep treating them and see what happens. Right. So we're getting rid of the people in whom it didn't work and then looking to see what happens among the responders. And then do and then we found that some of those responders go on to be super responders. Some kind of stay where they are and some actually end up having a little bit of regain. So it's very, very interesting. Um, this is this really happens with all medications. Right. I mean, even, you know, like a statin or a blood pressure medication or a medication for blood sugar. But it's really comes into the spotlight with these medications for weight loss, because what the FDA looks for and what all the clinical studies now report are weight loss of say greater than 5%, greater than 10%, greater than 15%. And now with these newer agents, you're seeing studies that are reporting weight loss greater than 20%, greater than 25%. I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, at an auction, right? 5, 10, 15, <laughs> who wants five, who wants 25, right? But there are people who are achieving this degree of weight loss with these medications. So the 5% cutoff is still what the guidelines say you should use to decide if someone should stay on the medication. And insurance uses that as well. So it can be a little brutal if someone is, you know, kind of 4.8 on a really on a slow but steady trajectory of losing weight and insurance will say, well, wasn't 5%, we're done covering it. So that's another soapbox. Yeah. But 
5% is generally what the guidelines say you should look for to decide if someone should keep taking the medication because they're taking it for weight loss, right? A person taking it for weight loss, as well as potentially they have, um, they may have specific benefits, cardiovascular benefits or benefits of the liver. But right now they're approved, um, for weight loss. So if you're not achieving weight loss, you maybe want to try another agent. But the, um, there are some people who are these super and then I guess maybe super duper responders, right? So you, um, we, we tried to look at that back in our responder study to see what are the potential predictors of who's going to be a high responder. Um, it is, there are several holy grail questions. Um, and this is among the mo one of the most important ones, which is how do we know in whom this is going to work? Is there a blood test we can do? Is there a some other biochemical marker? Is there any other marker? Is it waist circumference? Is it age? Is it menopausal status? Is it, you know, I mean, eye color, hair color, you know, what what could it be that is going to make you um predict your response? And at the moment, we we don't we don't know. There is nothing, there isn't a blood test that we can do that will tell us. And for sure they're gonna be, you know, genetic components as well. Um, I think we're going to find that out um, for sure that there are some people who, you know, you can do, we're probably, you know, going to be able to do pharmacogenomics on many, many medications, including weight loss medications. But at the moment, all we can do is, um, is try it and see. And what we found and what other people have found is that in general, the trajectory of weight loss within the first three months is a good predictor of that. So, I mean, it doesn't seem like that's such an aha moment, but in a way, it is helpful to know because if someone is, you know, really having very, very slow weight loss, um, they're unlikely to be a high responder. So um, they may achieve 5% or not even, but it's unlikely that, say, after six months, they're going to turn into someone who loses 25%. So early response tends to predict later response. Um, higher BMI, people also tend to have more weight loss, but that isn't so surprising because it is, I would say it's analogous to if someone has diabetes and their blood sugar is very, very high. So you start a medication. So that first decrease of their hemoglobin A1C of their blood average blood sugar marker, um, that first delta is often really big. And then as you get kind of closer to target, it gets harder and harder. So if you start, start at a very high BMI, um, that weight loss response, um, initially might be more robust than st someone starting with a BMI, say in the low 30s or in the high 50s. Okay. So there's that. Although sometimes people with very high body weights turn out to be non-responders as well. Hmm. Um, but we we did not identify any um any sort of slam dunk predictors of um of responder status other than um BMI. Do we do we know because, you know, we sort of started this talking about that central visceral fat. Do we know if there is a um, difference or if there's any delta between like what they lose viscerally and what they lose subcutaneously? So in, in some of the landmark studies for approval of all of the agents that I mentioned before, they looked at body composition in a subset and they looked at whether or not there was, you know, what is the proportion of loss of fat versus loss of, um, you know, what's it, what was the visceral fat loss? Um, but they don't, they're really, there haven't been any, there is also similarly not really a way to predict if someone will lose 
well, I'll say it differently. If someone who has central distribution of body fat, say after menopause, compared to someone who has much more subcutaneous distribution, more around the thighs, more around the hips and the butt, um, if they will be a high responder or not. Um, that is, and they, that has not been shown. There is an improvement in waist circumference often um, in people who take these medications. However, that is, I think, reflective of the fact that um, it's very common to have a, a lot of fat accumulation around the waist. And so you get you do get weight loss around the waist. Um, I have had people with body fat distribution that is much more peripheral, right? Le less around the middle and more around the butt and um, the thighs and um, have... Uh, have weight loss with these medications as well. So um, I don't think that this, the studies have not definitely parsed out what is the body, the body fat distribution and the responder status. And similar, they haven't, um, the data when they look at responders, they just show you the percentage, right? The percentage of people who lose, again, into those categories, 5, 10, 15, 20%. But they don't even break that down necessarily by men or women, by menopausal status, by age. This is really where I think it's uh, you're going to get a lot of interesting ideas and, and answers, but also ideas for specific research into mechanisms and predictors of weight loss, right? Is if you look at the responder group and say, okay, let's compare responders to non-responders based on um, these parameters, based on male, female, based on um, menopausal status based on distribution of body fat. All of those things I think will help inform future studies about in whom these medications are going to be most beneficial. Right now it's all trial and I mean, not really trial and error. It's just trial and trial again. Yeah. 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 Do they, do they look at, because this comes up an awful lot and, you know, Peter Atia raised flags about it famously on his podcast. Are they looking at muscle and bone loss? They are. The studies have looked at changes, as I said, in body composition. Um, they the changes in in bone um, and in and muscle loss. So what's tricky is that goes along with weight loss, however you do it, right? So if you lose a lot of weight on, say, a diet that is shakes, meal replacements, or a very low-calorie diet, or whatever mechanism it is, um, that is really what sets you up for. It's just dramatic, rapid weight loss that has an adverse effect on your bones. It's not clear. It's not known whether or not how you lost the weight makes a difference, right? So if you take um, a group of people, all of whom lost um, 10% of their body weight within two months, um, and then sort it out. Well, how do they do it? So that study hasn't been done, right? Have some people like forced lose their weight in one way or another. Um, there are studies that have these run-in periods where, for example, they have people lose a certain amount of weight and then they put them on, say, for example, semaglutide and see, do you maintain the weight loss on semaglutide and compared to placebo. So, you know, what is, uh, is this a pharmacotherapy that can help sustain weight loss that is achieved without medication? However, they don't, they, they when they look at the end of the run-in period, they don't necessarily look at things like, well, what happened to their bones? What happened to their body composition at that time? Yeah. And that, I mean, I think that that is just something that we want to put a little flag in, you know, for this audience specifically, because they can't really afford to lose muscle or bone, you know, once you're talking about a postmenopausal woman. 
Right. And so I think that's a really good point. And in fact, there was just an interesting uh, piece that that someone did that that I was asked about in um, the it was in the USA Today. So it was in the late press, not scientific press, but it was someone who was saying that she had lost too much weight by taking uh, semaglutide, Ozempic. And so this question of losing. So I was asked about, what you know, is it possible to lose too much weight? And so um, I had a lot of comments about that. But I would say that this is an example of, you know, it's not even how many pounds you lose on the scale, but there is a way in which you lose weight that is unhealthy. And so it, even if it's not, say, too much weight in terms of the number on the scale, it might be too much weight for your bone health and for your muscles, right? The pace at which you lose it and, um, right, and how you've lost the weight may not be um, good for your muscle and bone. And we don't know yet if we can offset that with resistance training, you know, and taking other measures to, you know, increasing protein for muscle protein synthesis to, I don't know that that research has been done. Right. But I counsel everyone to do that. I mean, I counsel all women for sure to be doing strength training and it, it, you know, whatever the intervention you're using, whether you're having someone follow, um, you know, meal replacements or using one of these agents or using some of the other medications that are FDA approved for weight loss, however a person is going to lose weight, they're not going to lose only fat. They're always going to lose a muscle. So anytime you embark on a journey to lose any amount of weight, you should, if you're not already, you should start doing strength training. And if you are, you should do more of it or, you know, kind of mix it up so that you're doing maybe heavier load because no matter what, you're going to lose the muscle. And we maybe we'll get to this, but, you know, then when it comes to the regain, um, if you stop these medications, um, there is typically regain of fat. I mean, you don't start to, re you would be, it would be amazing if you regain muscle, right? Like, wouldn't that be, right? Like, you know, so say you lose all this weight and then go off of it and then the gain is all muscle. That would be, you know, kind of right, a right. Yeah, that would be, that would be something. And we, I do have that as a question for sure. Um, about like, are these forever drugs be before we, um, before we get to that part, I am curious about, the um the nutrition piece because i saw this wild story and i shared it with you from wall street journal that there's like a cottage industry sort of opening up with nutrient nutrient packed foods especially protein because we don't want you to get malnourished while you're on ozempic and i'm like wait a minute so i mean is this actually is this a concern i mean is this what we're it can be it can be i mean patients do report very significant appetite suppression and they report really having a hard time eating anything. Uh, I always counsel people that if that's the case, you have to make sure that when you're looking at what you're about to put in your mouth, it has to be something that is nutrient dense and very high quality. You have to, if you're not taking in a lot of calories because you're not hungry, you have to really focus on them being calories that are very high quality, right? Nutrient dense, highly nutritious, you know, make sure you're getting in fruits and vegetables and lean proteins and healthy fats, even if it's very small portions. Um, I think that it is, it's very hard to get an accurate sense of food intake, because I think it's hard to remember what we eat. So unless you take a picture of every single thing you put in your mouth, it is, it's difficult um, to, to know that. So a lot of times patients will report food intake that is um, really like extremely, extremely limited. Um, 
And I don't think anyone is being dishonest. I think people just sometimes do maybe, you know, not keep track of all the different things that they're eating at different times of the day. But um, certainly I do tell people that if you're getting that, um, you really need to be sure that you're eating high quality foods. And if you are so nauseous that you don't have any appetite and you're asking me for, say, an anti-nausea medication and also you have no appetite, then I'm going to really be pumping the brakes. I know some doctors do prescribe anti-nausea meds and like kind of whatever it takes to keep you on these agents, but I don't do that. I think that's just very unhealthy to, um, you know, to just be taking more medication to treat side effects of a medication and also not having much food intake. But for sure, you could develop both macro and micronutrient deficiencies um, if you take these medications and um, really have decreased appetite and um, are not being mindful of the quality of your calories. So while you're while you're talking about side effects, what side effects do we need to know about? Side effects are very very common. So they side effects are seen in even in large studies, you know, maybe more than 60% of people, but I would say in my clinical practice it's probably closer to 80%, 80 to 90% of people have some side effects, including most commonly because the food stays in your stomach longer, that is what causes the reflux. That is what causes some nausea. It, you can get vomiting. You can get very severe constipation or diarrhea. Another, another thing that we, that you can't predict if someone's going to have constipation or diarrhea and people sometimes with chronic constipation, it gets way worse, but in some people it gets a little better. And in other people who have chronic diarrhea, again, it can can slow things down or it can make them really exacerbated. So um, it is a little bit odd to counsel people that, you know, this medication may either make you, you know, run into the bathroom or all, all the time or never. So, but the, both of those can be severe. Uh, some people describe headaches. Some people, a fewer numbers, but some people describe this very profound fatigue, mm. either a few hours after the injection or a couple days after the injection, usually the weekly ones. Um, I'm, I'm talking about that time frame. If it's daily, then it's usually hours after. But with the weekly ones, it could be the same day or maybe some people say it's very specific to like that next day. And it's people describe a very profound fatigue, like hmm. cannot, you know, get up off the couch. And, you know, active people and they just say, I always have this one day or these few hours where I am like, you know, cannot move. And no one really knows what that is. Um, but people hear that. Um, there are other, another very serious side effect that's rare is pancreatitis. So that is inflammation of the pancreas. Um, it's very serious. It requires someone to get medical attention right away. It usually requires, it does require hospitalization. Um, it is again, rare. And the, the, Good news, I guess you could say, is that it's also not subtle. So it's unlikely you're going to just be, you know, kind of running around doing things in your life with acute pancreatitis. You're going to be in a lot, lot, lot of pain and calling your doctor. So that is um, that is another potential serious side effect. And it can cause gallstones. Rapid weight loss can cause gallstones. So if these medications cause rapid weight loss, they can cause gallstones. And then um, there is a very rare form of thyroid cancer that was seen in rats. Um, the rat thyroid has receptors for GLP-1. The human thyroid um, most likely does not. Um, however, it's still a black box warning. So people who have certain um, risk factors or um, have certain cases of this rare form of thyroid cancer in their family or themselves wouldn't take it. 
Okay, so I'm also wondering, because I've been hearing a lot, you know, as you mentioned, there's insurance and there's all these factors, like how you can get it, who can get it. But I'm also hearing about this like little cottage industry of compounding pharmacies offering it way cheaper and people are on it, but maybe they're not on the right drug. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's really, really important. Sure. Um, So my response to compounded semaglutide, it's usually semaglutide, so it's compounded either Ozempic or Regovi, is run away, set a PR running away as fast as you possibly can. So these medications are not FDA regulated. Semaglutide, all of the GLP-1 agonists, all of these medications that I mentioned are all patented. There are not generics. They are FDA approved patented medications. So they're, they, they cannot be compounded. I mean, sure, in theory, you could make the molecule. However, this is totally unregulated. You have no idea what you're getting. Um, I have had patients who have bought these medications. Um, the dosing is something that I'm totally unfamiliar with. It comes in a little vial and the actual medication comes in a pen, you know, dispensed, um, like an insulin pen. So these are, um, they're just fake. I tell patients, I have no idea what's in it. I have no idea if it's safe. Um, and in fact, pharmaceutical companies are suing some of these compounding pharmacies because they are claiming to be making semaglutide. However, they, um, you know, they really have no basis for making that claim. So, um, if you're getting these medications compounded, uh, you should just throw it in the trash and go see a doctor, um, and, you know, get the real prescription because, um, again, they can be anywhere from, you know, the best case scenario, you just wasted your money, which might be a lot. Worst case scenario is they could actually be dangerous. So would I know that right out of the gate? Are these being prescribed by physicians or am I going to a special clinic to get, I mean, how, like, how will I know if I'm, if somebody is giving me a quote unquote, Fozempic product? Fozempic product. <laughs> um, so if you go to an online pharmacy that says, you know, and you click on compounded semaglutide, okay, for sure, don't do that. If you go to a doctor who, there are some doctors who are selling this, um, then, you know, it might be, you might say, well, but it was prescribed by a doctor. No, don't do it. Or online, they may say, well, but you know, you have a video visit with a doctor, so it must be legitimate. No, don't do that either. Um, There are some like medi spas where you can get a whole variety of things. You swipe your credit card and they will give you a lot of different things. Um, I don't, if it's actually the pen device from Novo that says semaglutide ozempic, then that's the real deal. And, you know, maybe they got it in a sketchy way, but it's the real medication. But unless it is, you know, the actual pen device with the name of Novo Nordisk and the, uh, molecule semaglutide, the trade name ozempic or Wagovi, you should not take it. That is very good advice because. As as you mentioned, this is a this kind of a cluster right now with insurance and um, and people are desperate. Yes, people are desperate to get it. Um, people who are yes, they are. You know, it used to be they could get it in Canada. Now you can't get it in Canada. Some entire countries are out of it. I just had a patient say that her relative in South Africa, there is no Ozempic in South Africa, like the country. So, I mean, there people are going to, you know, looking for other ways to get it. But um, 
but don't go the compounded route. It will just compound your problems. <laughs> wow. Okay. And as you mentioned, there's not necessarily a, a any end in sight for this this shortage. The shortage, or honestly, probably this is the beginning of this sketchy landscape of compounded molecules. Compounded, yeah. Masquerading. If you look in your crystal ball in the future, like what do you see? In terms of the medications? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think, well, there was just an approval of another medication. So that's going to offset some of the shortage of the, of semaglutide. Um, so uh, the crystal ball shows there are so many medications in the pipeline. So I think what's going to happen is that we are going to see medications coming from phase three trials, getting approved, super interesting triple agonist agonizes GLP-1, GIP, and glucagon with weight loss. You know, I was saying, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, and this is even going to like 30. And um, in one of the studies that they presented at a recent meeting, their their responder rate of 5% of at least 5% was 100%, meaning there were no non-responders. Like there were essentially no non-responders. So like there were some really interesting medications in the pipeline that are very, very effective. Um, but my crystal ball also says, you know, what's going to happen is they're going to be approved and everyone's going to be so excited and no one's going to be able to get them because, <laughs> because of all of these obstacles. And then what will happen is then the semaglutide will be generic. And, um, but it will be so yesterday <laughs> by the time it's generic, it's going to be so yesterday, but people are going to be, it's going to be like how people are back to using fentramine because we can't get semaglutide. So it's going to just be a lot of catch up unless someone gets their head screwed on, right. And realizes that insurance should cover medication for weight loss. Then I think things will change. So this all, and thank you for sharing that. So this might be a kind of loaded question. It's almost a two-part question too, but there are there health criteria for being prescribed these drugs? And I ask because there are definitely currently metabolically healthy people I know who are trying to pursue them, you know, for a moderate amount of weight that is not necessarily negatively impacting their health. And there's this crazy conversation going on. And it's, I think it's like a thought experiment. Like, could they be used as a performance enhancing drug for like cyclists, you know, who want to be as skinny as possible? Which when I'm listening to you talk, I'm like, I also wonder how do you train when you're on these drugs? So, I mean, that's a lot of questions, but let's answer the first one right. first is like, are there health criteria for being prescribed these drugs? So, yes, even that is a bit of a loaded question because there are criteria that are set by their guidelines. Uh, and then there are the realities of what insurance is, uh, forces us to do. So the prescribing guidelines, um, from the obesity society, um, as well as other organizations, the prescribing guidelines for the treatment for using pharmacotherapy to treat obesity are a BMI. Okay. Pause right there. BMI is a flawed, is itself a flawed measure. You've talked about that. So BMI. Okay. So already we're, you know, we're out of the gate and we've got a flaw. We've got a flawed measurement, but we do use, you know, BMI of greater than 30 or greater than 27 with comorbidities. Now, another complexity, comorbidities are typically defined as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart disease, diabetes, and notably don't include depression, um, 
just feeling, you know, depression because of the way your body is or depression for whatever other reasons that is exacerbated by you being um, upset about how your body looks and how much you weigh. Um, osteoarthritis, right? You can't walk. Your knees are killing you. You need knee replacements, but that doesn't count. Um, it's only these specific metabolic comorbidities that count in terms of whether or not you kind of qualify for prescribing it. Now, people can do what they will do. Doctors can prescribe, you know, and unfortunately they do. And that's why we're in, you know, this really complicated state of um, shortages with no end end date in sight. But um, insurance companies have different criteria. So I am commonly receiving these denials because the insurance company is saying, oh, a person BMI has to be above 40. So they're, you know, they're using criteria that are used for bariatric surgery. So that is problematic because we're not even all in the same playing field. But typically, I I mean, my colleagues and I, um, endocrinologists who I think, or, you know, people who practice obesity medicine will use those criteria of 27 with comorbidities or above 30. But I also think people are a little bit more uh, open-minded about what the comorbidities are, like I said, because some of them are are not included, but I think should be. Um, so now to the point, it, it is certainly possible that someone could have a BMI of say 26, all of their fat is around the belly, really skinny arms, really skinny legs, toned arm, toned legs, um, all the fat is around the middle and they have cirrhosis, right? They have advanced fatty liver disease to the point of cirrhosis with a BMI of 26. So, right. So that's a person in whom, oh yes, it would be indicated. Or, you know, what happens if you have someone with a BMI of 50 who does not have hypertension, does not have high cholesterol, does not have diabetes, um, is, goes to the gym, is physically active. Um, what do you do then? Um, you know, I mean, or you could take, you know, you, you can, that's maybe an extreme case um, because with a very high body weight, you could say, you know, um, there are other health consequences that will develop, although, you know, no one can say for sure, but probably with higher body weights, that's going to happen um, over time um, with very, very high body weights. But certainly there are a lot of people who are in the middle with say BMIs 30 to 35 um, as um, perhaps what you're talking about, metabolically really healthy. Um, should they do in triathlons, should they be taking these medications or not? Um, you know, that is, they, they will meet the criteria based on the number on the scale, but I, and then, you know, correcting for height to get the BMI. But I, I think you really need to look at the whole person and you really also need to look at, well, if the side, if they are, say you have someone who is really active, um, and they do meet the criteria, but the side effects, you really are worried that the side effects are going to interfere with their being as active as they are swimming, biking, running, hiking, whatever it is. I would discourage, I would go for other medications. These aren't necessarily the answer for everyone, for sure. Um, they, they, there are a lot of caveats. And so I don't, I don't think that it is the answer to weight loss for every person. Yeah. Thank you for that. That very nuanced answer. I did, you know, it's, it's such a, the conversation is so nuanced because I do know, and I've talked to, you know, larger bodied triathletes, 
ultra runners, you know, the whole spectrum who their blood sugar is good, their blood pressure is good. All these things are good. They don't actually want these drugs, yet sometimes they go to a physician who immediately directs them towards them because body weight is bad, right? And like, that's a whole other conversation, but I I worry about that for them. You know, I think that that should be something that, um, you know, you should be able to assess with your health provider your your health, you know, like objectively. Right. I think that that's a really good point. A lot of doctors do just look at you know, the number on the scale or the person sitting there, you know, what they can see and make an assessment, right? You can't see someone's blood pressure. I mean, you can measure it, but you can't see it with your eyes when, you know, you can't see someone's cholesterol level. I mean, sure, there are fi- clinical findings if it's very, very high. Um, but, you know, the average person, you know, you can't, the average lay eyes cannot see other medical conditions the way you see someone's weight. And so I think that um, all the time patients come to me and they're told, you know, whatever it is, um, if you have a hangnail, lose weight. If, you know, <laughs> yeah. if, if your eyelash is like going in the wrong direction, well, because you need to lose weight. You know, like some people, you cannot believe what doctors have told them, right? No matter what it is. And also people, you know, they come to see me and they say, you know, these they say, don't these people think that, you know, I do they think I'm not trying? I mean, right? So especially people with metabolic or other medical complications, um, people are trying. And so I think that that um, it's it's very hard because uh, there's just a lot of judgment that happens immediately when you look at someone um, and, you know, based on their size. Is it is it hard to train on these drugs? Do, the, do these side effects subside? You know, I mean, I'm curious about, like, you know, active people. Do you know people who are competitive are training on these drugs and doing it successfully? Um, so first, do the side effects subside? Not always. Sometimes they do, right? So the the spiel that we're that I usually give people is side effects tend to diminish the farther you are from the day of the injection and the longer you stay on it. That's not always true. I mean, that's kind of how I set the stage, but I've definitely had people who have been on a maintenance dose for a very long time who all of a sudden get debilitating GI symptoms and have to stop the medication for reasons like, you know, I don't know. And so that happens. I mean, sometimes it happens like in these weird clusters and I feel like there's something going on in in the actual medication, but no, I mean, it just, it just happens to people sometimes. Um, I, I don't, I don't know of anyone who's taking it, any, any athletes, um, say who are any competitive athletes who I might know, you know, kind of my club or otherwise. Um, but again, another topic still is how people don't even talk about taking it if they are taking it, right? Like people don't even want to say if they're taking it if they are. But um, I think I'm fortunate to be surrounded by a community of people also who are just focused on um, achieving athletic goals and not, you know, kind of staring at the scale, right? You know, and um and have a very healthy attitude towards um training and body weight. Um and I think I do think that's the case in the larger triathlon community for the most part, right? People feel like, you know, it's um it's and I noticed that is a major change from a running community, right? The variety of shapes and sizes that you see in triathlon is just so much broader than in running, which um which I think makes it healthier in terms of body image for athletes, especially female athletes. 
Running is working on that. <laughs> I mean, I know people yes. who work at Runner's World, they are working on that. They are. Yes, definitely. They definitely are. But um, yeah. But I when was... I see these conversations, like I shared with you about like, well, I mean, should WADA be banning these drugs? I'm like, I'm not sure they're performance enhancing drugs. I'm not sure that that's where this is going. Well, yes. And also, I do want to just say that there are a lot of people for whom these medications are really life-changing. I mean, I hear the word game changer all the time from patients. So people with high body weights and a lot of metabolic complications who are now able to bring their laundry up from the basement, their wet laundry in the laundry basket and carry it up a flight or two of stairs is huge. Get on the floor with their grandchildren, be able to take their grandchildren for a walk, like enormous, enormous changes in their lives. Um, who benefit from these. And we know that there is limited supply. So that's a whole other sort of, um, <laughs> I don't know if I can swear on this. Oh, yes, you can. <laughs> that's a whole other shit show, right? Like the, the fact that there are shortages with no end date in sight, the fact that it's really hard to get these medications into the hands of people who need them. So, um, I mean, I do think very, very hard about prescribing them for every, you know, every time I do prescribe it, I think hard about it because, um, they're, they're limited. They're, they really are. So, you know, to be taking supply away because, you know, you want to get an extra two Watts. I mean, it blows my mind because there are, you know, People who do that may or may not see, you know, the what I see in my professional practice of people for whom it is so life changing. Um, so I, I'm very, yeah, that that certainly rose me the wrong way. Yeah, I, I very, very, very good point. One more loaded question: What do you <laughs> say to what do you say to people who say that this is just quote unquote? And I've seen those words cheating. That you should just like, why can't you just eat right and exercise. So I would say, um, gosh, um, the G rated version of what I would say. You can say anything on this show, but go ahead. (laughs) I mean, I would say, you know, that is total bullshit because people are trying, right? I mean, that just points to the problem that people think that obesity is a disease of choice. Um, You know, people, a high body weight is not a choice someone makes. A high body weight has so many factors that go into it, many of which a person can't control. And, um, you know, would you say that someone is cheating if they have an LDL of 250 and they take a statin? Would you say someone's cheating if they have diabetes and they take a medication to lower their blood sugar? I mean, you know, I, I don't, it just seems so unfair to use that word with this disease specifically, right? No one's cheating when they treat really any other medical condition, right? I mean, if you like literally just go down the list, if you have asthma and use an inhaler, like, are you cheating? No, you should suffocate. I mean, this <laughs> is madness. So I think that, you know, and I, and people play into it, right? Some people are embarrassed to say that they're taking these medications. And um, I think the only, you know, the only reason you should be embarrassed is if you're someone who has a normal body weight and you're literally taking a, uh, the supply away from people who really need it. But Otherwise, um, I just think that that is is total nonsense. And I I just um, I understand why people are doing it. I think, you know, there's a lot of societal pressure. um, But I think that there is, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking medications to treat diseases. Excellent. Thank you for that. 
So I I can't leave this conversation without like maybe what's one of the most important parts of it is are they forever drugs? You know, do you need to stay on it forever? Right. Again, one of the really important holy grail questions that is going to be hard to study. Right now, what's happening is we sort of have um, an experiment of this because with the shortages, people may start them, lose some weight, and then they can't get their refills. So this is happening in real time. And, you know, thoughtful physicians, I think, are keeping track to what's happening with their patients. Um, what happens when you go off these medications has been, there have been some studies that have looked at that. So they've looked at the end treatment and see what happens with the weight regain. I think the first thing to say about that is that, remember, this is looking at what happens to someone when a clinical trial ends. So some, uh, you know, the, you go in for, you know, a visit and you report your weight, but you were part of a clinical study with all the bells and whistles that went along with that, meaning study visits, support, a really nice research team, the nurses in the clinical research center were all super nice. So you had a lot of support. So then you stop the study and there is some regain. So those patterns of regain, um, I think, will be a little bit different in the real world. However, just like there is a stratification by responder status, there is a stratification of regainers, right? So there's a regain stratification where some people gain much more weight quickly and some people gain weight slowly. And I'm sure there are some people who don't really gain that much weight back at all. And we have to figure out um, for in each person what is the maintenance dose going to be? So first, we have to really take a deeper dive into um, some of the data that exist. Um, and although, you know, again, taking into account that they are clinical studies, but still looking at that, keeping track right now in the real world of what's happening when people stop. Um, and also being really open-minded about um, people's maintenance dose, right? So say a person achieves the weight loss they want to achieve, and right now we're saying, well, if you go off of it, you're going to regain some weight. Well, that's a really broad statement to make. I don't know how much weight you'll regain, and I don't know how quickly you will do that. So what do we do? Do we decrease the dose for a few months and see? Do you maintain your weight on a lower dose? Do you take it every other week? Um, these are all open questions um, that pharma will not want to fund, right? Like why would they, why do they want to fund a study that's going to show you how to stop using them, right? They're making like gazillions of dollars. So, um, you know, these are not going to be funded by um, pharmaceutical companies who manufacture them, but very important questions because, um, you know, I, people always say to me, you know, will I, what do I do when I reach a plateau? And I say, well, no patient has ever like literally vanished. No, no one has ever disappeared. No one has ever lost so much weight that they have poof, you know, vanished off of the face of the earth. So we just have to see, we have to see um, wh what your weight loss trajectory is and what, how to nuance the medication so that you maintain this weight loss. Um, some people plateau before they've achieved the weight loss that they desire. And that can be, that can be really frustrating. Um, you know, if someone really hopes to be a super responder and they lose 5%, um, so that's when I really try to have people lean into other things like, well, what about physical activity? And what about, you know, kind of doing other things to improve your health and not being so focused on um, only the weight loss that you had. But yeah, the maintenance of weight loss is, again, something that um, that we're just going to learn over the next, you know, many years. What do you think when you're talking to this audience, like, what is the 
bottom line that you would want to leave them with if they are considering going this route for this audience? I would advise people to go see someone who really knows about these medications, um, who has a lot of experience prescribing them, who can tell you, um, ideally see you in person and hear your story, understand why you want to take them, lay out all the, um, lay out the whole landscape, right? What are the side effects? What are your possible responses? Will you be able to go off of it? Why do you want to take it to begin with? Um, you know, really listen to you and, um, and help you make an assessment and work with you to decide, right? Um, if, if it's the right medication for you, um, I would say, don't just take it because some doctor said to you, you know, you just need to lose weight. And so, um, and also don't get caught up in all the hype. Um, the, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, and so I think that, um, I think that is really does a disservice to obesity as a disease, the treatment of obesity as a disease. And um, it really just puts these medications into, um, you know, into a, a realm where they are subject to a lot of misinformation. Um, what is some of the misinformation you're most frustrated with? Um, that I think that the, the narrative that take this medication, you the pounds will just peel off. You'll never think about food again. And it's just the easiest thing ever. Um, you don't have to move a muscle. You can just take this medication and, you know, eat whatever you want because you really won't be that hungry and you don't have to like, yeah, you don't have to exercise. Like this is all you need to do. That I think is, you know, is really, really frustrating. I think a much bigger win is to get someone to be achieving other goals, right? Other athletic goals, other physical fitness goals, other, you know, being able to walk up a hill you could never walk up, finish, you know, a hike you could never finish. All of these things. Um, I had a patient, um, I also run a weight loss program and her goal was to swim across Walden Pond. And uh, she participated in my program. And then, um, I mean, a few years later, I got a message from her and she said, hey, you know, I actually did it. I made it across Walden Pond. And like, I mean, there is, you know, these are, these are the fist pumps, right? These are, I think what you, um, you know, you kind of take that to the grave much more so than like, you look down at the scale and you're like, yes, it says whatever it says this number like that is not, it is, you know, it's a different kind of victory, but it's not, you know, kind of like in your soul. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I really would, um, you know, I'm really happy when people embrace both of them. Um, and I have, you know, these other goals because you can achieve, I mean, speaking to this, you know, this audience, it's, um, we all know this, but if you, as long as you set the bar, right, you're always going to make progress, right? So you don't know what the scale is going to do, but you do know that if your goal is to walk one minute more tomorrow than you walk today, then you can do that, right? So if you set it up, right, you're always going to be a winner, um, and so I think that I really, really try to get people on board with that, um, as they're taking these medications, because, um, it's just, it's such a positive feed forward way to approach your health. Well, that's our show. Come on back next week when I sit down with elite cyclist and coach Jill Patterson. We talk about how she suddenly lost her power when she hit perimenopause and importantly, how she got it back. So come on back for that one. 
And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.